So welcome to the Healthy Beast Martial Arts Grandmaster, Steve Benitez. <laughs> and you're, you're joining us from Spain today. Yes, that's correct. I, uh, I reside now near in Catalonia, just 15 kilometers outside Barcelona. So you locked down? Yep, yeah, there is a lockdown. It's not as extreme as the previous one. The restrictions are that at 10 o'clock, everyone has to go to bed. A proper curfew. So what happens if you're caught after 10 o'clock? There's a fine between, it varies between 3,000 euros and possible 6,000 euros. How the, how the Spanish people coping with that? Because they're not people, they're, a lot of the people can probably remember living under a slightly more um, authoritarian regime, some of the older people. So how do the Spanish people taking that? Again, it varies. Look, it, there's, been some, there's been some writing in Barcelona recently, the last two weeks. People have gone out and, you know, there's been some violent riots. I don't know if you've seen any. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by, by and large, because there's a good family unit in Spain, they're okay. They're okay. They're generally okay because the, the family unit is still very, very strong. Of course, during the summer seasons, you know, Spain is very much a holiday destination, right? So people come from all over and party. And that was, that was a huge problem during the summer. So you saw a big spike. You know, after one lockdown and a second lockdown, I, I think you've got to give people a lot of credit. How's your work and your training been affected through this year? My own individual training has uh, definitely been hugely influenced because you train with people every day. You train with people all the time. You roll, you spar. So I've had to adapt to a very strict discipline of training myself. And, and so I've kept that up. I've kept that up. But in terms of sparring and contact, very minimal. And then um, when, I, when I kind of sensed that this was going to be a long-term thing then I started doing webinars because I was doing a seminar every week somewhere you know all over the world I'd be doing seminars so I just transferred to webinars so I've been fortunate that it hasn't really affected me too much. So when you did these seminars before this is in C we'll talk about this martial arts this is CLA and I I need to know about it because I I did some (laughs) research on the internet and I'm going to read you the two things that I read about CLA right okay (laughs) so number one Silat is about being at one with nature and a mystical union with nature. Number two, unlike some martial arts that stress spirituality or self-perfection, Silat is all about one thing, violence. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> okay. I don't know much more than that. Because to other people doing other martial arts, you see, I guess you wear some scarves and quite a you know particular clothing involved but then there's this other side so maybe you could help with my internet research okay well Richard uh, in regards to the first theory <laughs> becoming one with nature there's some truth in that Benjak Sila and nature are very close why because it's an art that has uh, derived from Nusantara Southeast Asia and people used to practice it very close to nature okay very close to the rainforest or you know, if you, if you ever travel to Southeast Asia, you know, it's very dense forest, right? So, of course, nature and martial arts interlinked, intermarried. And then there was a lot of observation with nature. You know, all the philosophy in the martial arts tends to come from that. Animal motion, movement, trees being rooted, water flowing, that kind of stuff, right? The practice of becoming one with nature in Sila is, is also derives from the understanding that nature is alive in Indonesia, like some of my teachers in Indonesia, before they cut a plant, they wouldn't just cut it. They would ask permission. Or if they were, if they were sowing a piece of land, 
they would ask the land for permission. That's still a tradition in Indonesia. So there's this interaction between you and nature all the time. You wouldn't just turn up at a park in Penjak Sila and say, like, I'm going to train there. You would have to sit quietly, inquire and, and feel whether that was the right space for you to train. So that's, that's a very old tradition. Okay. In regards to uh, Penjak Silat being violent, in the old tradition, which is what I learned, the old traditional Silat, you make vows only to use it to protect the weak or your community. So Silat instructors were normally protectors of communities before, uh, or they were protectors of, they were bodyguards or security officers, you know. So really, it, it's a self-defense art. And that's why, it, if you look at the motion and the movement, it starts off with three normal steps and the three steps based on tradition. Look, I'm giving you three opportunities. So there's norm- normally three movements which cover you before you hit. And, and so that always stems back on it being a self-defense protective art rather than a violent art. But it can get violent because we use knives, weapons, swords, crumbits. We use cloths very much like you use the gi. We use cloths. So, you know, you might find yourself with a cloth around your neck and emotion and your neck's gone. So it can get violent, but in the context of self-defense. So there's a bit of truth in, in both of those ones. Yeah. So there's the spiritual side, but there's also... Because there was one comparison I made was... I saw made was to Krav Maga, which, you know, has become very well known here. Is it still used like that for armed forces and so forth? Well, I, I do a lot of work with uh, police officers all over the world. So rather than teaching the holistic whole martial art, because there's a yoga in the martial art, there's a lot of internal training in the martial art. What we tend to do when we teach security officers or police officers is we do a very kind of short self-defense, you know, extraction from the actual whole. Do, do you know what I mean? So that's why sometimes it's compared to Krav Maga, because the Silat, the Silat syllabus is quite big. But if I'm teaching some officers, I'm only going to take two or three techniques specific for what they want to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, because it seems like I, I watch some of the stuff. It's very complicated, a lot of it. You know, it's yeah. involving involving dozens, even hundreds of moves. So you could see when you're when you're trying to explain it to someone, yeah, who's maybe trying to do a, a fairly straightforward law enforcement role, yeah. it could be a, it could be a, a bit much for them, a bit more than they would need, because that stuff must take years to learn, right? It depends what teacher you have. If I was teaching you, because you've got a base, I, you the conditioning is very hard in Penjaxi. I'm not going to lie to you; it's as hard as jujitsu. So, you know, some people say to me, do you think in comparison to jujitsu conditioning and silat conditioning, I would say it's equal. So, you know, the, fir- you know, the first three years in jujitsu, most people are getting conditioned just to the, the conditioning, right? They're surviving most of the time. In reality, that's what it's like in silat if you have a teacher. The, the physical conditioning is tremendously hard. But once you get that, then it becomes a smoother ride because the, the conditioning and the techniques, they're married very much like your warm-ups. You know, you do a lot of warm ups and then you find out that the actual warm ups that you're doing are going to be used for actual maneuvers, right? It's the same. Yeah, they do it in that. It's a bit, it's a bit kind of wax on, wax off in that they show beginners techniques and they don't tell, they don't, they don't tell you what this is for necessarily. You're just doing some, yeah, things like a silly warm up. And then you realize later, sometimes years later, there are certain things, there are certain things that I've been doing as warm ups for years and only thought, oh, I see, it's actually got an application to something. A lot, a lot of the people you teach are not martial artists, right? Because 
back in the day when we used to be able to go into gyms, remember that? I would see you, you had a lot back in London, a lot of private clients, and a lot of them weren't martial artists. So, what, what are you? What are you? What are you bringing from your world of martial arts to people like that? I came from a very sports background myself. So I used to play quite high level football. I used to play for Brentford, and I played for Luton Town. Right. So I was. I was as a kid. I was either boxing, full contact fighting, or playing football. But I was quite studious as well. I was quite academic with it. So I've always had a love of sports science, sports development. And the whole process of development. So what I tend to do is when I do, when you see me working with clients, sometimes I'm working on stability, therapy, helping. You, sometimes you'll see me work with, you know, clients that can hardly walk or very, or the elderly. So what I tend to do is marry the Eastern methods that I've learned from CELAP and the Western sports science methodologies to kind of bring it together. So you're right. I don't teach a lot. I do teach a lot of martial arts, but I also use my CELAP to help people with, maybe, you know, skeletal disabilities, muscular di- disabilities, you know, the elderly that can't walk, people that have balance problems, coordination problems, or people that are just scared of fighting, <clears throat> people that have been bullied, you know, and then I take them through a very, depending on the individual, depending on where they are, I take them through a very slow, progressive, methodical, individual kind of training. Because, every, you know, I don't believe that you can teach martial arts one way for the whole. I don't believe that, I, you know, I, I, and I feel that's why a lot of people give up. You know, some people lack coordination. Some people are just afraid of contact. You know, others have been told that they'll never be good at athletics. So, you know, that's why I've always enjoyed working with the individuals. And normally what I do is when I have a class, you know, a CLAC class where I'm doing a seminar, I, I try to kind of spot the, the people that have this kind of bad relationship with coordination or motion or movement. And then I normally take them aside and work and give them specific drills to help them. I was writing something down that you said, because you said that people had a bad relationship with coordination. You said. Yeah. Quite a nice way. It's quite a nice, quite a nice way of putting it because you, you, people would be called, you know, uncoordinated and back back in the day when you it was okay to be mean to people it's good that we've moved on but when you say got got a bad relationship with coordination do you just, is that just a polite way of saying the same thing or are you, is it actually something that you've spotted that's fixable a hundred percent fixable because and why I, I specifically use the word relationship because it's not a mechanical biochemical physiological problem it's a mental emotional problem and it normally arises or and it's normally arisen when they've been at school normally doing PE when they haven't kind of got something early on because you're always out of 30 people you're always going to get some that are more talented some that are not some that are more athletic and and if you do your research the kids that are normally more athletic or more coordinated they're the ones that normally have a garden okay right or they're the ones that the parents have allowed to play out climb trees, run in the fields. When you suddenly take that away from someone, what are they left with? A room at home and a TV? So of course your coordination skills are not developing. So of course it's a self thing. You then think about yourself, oh, I am not coordinated. I have no balance. I have no rhythm. I have no timing. So that's why I call it a relationship with yourself. And I, and I promise you this, I, I've had, I was doing, there was a, a Sky report, a reporter who was a, a client of mine six foot six, lives in Richmond. And he had told me, he'd said to me, Steve, listen, I'm the, mo- the most uncoordinated human being on the planet. 
He said, I trip over when I walk. People laugh at me all the time. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, I said, so, and he, he used to live, he grew up in Ipswich. And I said to him, so like, as a kid, did you ever have a bike? And he was like, no, no, you know, we didn't have the money. You know, I said, did you have a skateboard? No, I'd never buy a skateboard. That's the last thing that I could do. I said, look, well, what did you do? He said, oh, I just used to go to school and I used to come back home and watch TV and do my homework. And I said, okay. And then, so I took him, I took him, you know, and he didn't have any coordination. He was right. You know, he couldn't throw a punch, couldn't slip. He could hardly walk, but I promise you, within two to three years, people were coming up to me and saying, why don't you get him in the ring? He's a really tall guy. Why don't you start getting him in the ring, like for some amateur fights? And I was like, no, 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 no. He's not interested in that. So it, it really is a relationship with yourself. It really is. What I was thinking was just politeness is actually probably a really important, different way of thinking. Is 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 this idea that you look at someone and decide they're a certain thing? Oh, you're 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 not very good at this, but it's amazing to get someone who's a, who's a grown up like that and you can actually unpick it. Because I kind of think most people think, well, when you're a kid, maybe, but as a grown up, you can really see big differences, can you? Massively. Look, one of the systems, and I, and I often talk about this in, in, in C-Latin for martial artists, right? One of the systems that people misunderstand is the nervous system. The nervous system is the first system that as a child, as a fetus, forms. And it's directly responsible for us learning motor skills, skills in general, okay? Because people don't understand that system, they don't really understand how the nervous system works. What they do is by saying, I can't, I'm not good enough, they're basically shutting down all the neurological pathways that are responsible for them to receive information, knowledge, and learn. So by someone saying, I can't, they're literally saying, they're literally paralyzing their learning but they don't realise that it's in the nervous system. So any, anyone can learn any skill. When you're, when you're teaching people, do you, if they come to you to, learn to for, say, general fitness or to generally get better at one aspect of their life, do you try and steer them towards martial arts or do you sort of general, gently suggest it or do you only bring it to people that specifically come to you for it? Okay, so that's a good question. I've had to watch that about myself, to be honest. Uh, Richard, because because I'm very passionate about the CLAP, you know, I've had to be careful in influencing my clients in the right way, right? So the way that I've got around doing that is just by saying to them, what do you enjoy the most? Now, I've had clients that say to me, look, I hate everything. I don't like, I don't like lifting weights. I don't like motion and movement. I just need to get fit. So I'll just take them out for a walk and slowly introduce them as we're walking some steps and some steps you know, some stretches, the bench, slowly like that. And then as they start developing what I would call this normal relationship with motion and movement, then I start introducing them to an array of skills. I might influence, I might start doing cable work. I might start doing TRX. I might start introducing them to running. And then after a while, I get to know them after about three months, which is in CLAC, we call call the three-month period. We call it the SEMBA period. It's three months. Then I start saying, well, look, in my, in my um, understanding of my view of you, you seem to enjoy running. You seem to enjoy floor work. And then I put a program for them. That's how I do it. And what about if you mentioned, you, you touched on this before about severe physical limitations. And you said if someone doesn't think they're sporty, you, you go for a walk with them. What if even going for a walk's not an option? Where do you, where do you start off then? Okay, that's interesting. I've had clients that have said to me, 
called me up and said, I believe you could help me. And I said, well, let's have a look. I've turned up at their house and they've said to me, look, I need to get fit. This is the doctor's report. My blood pressure is like this. My cholesterol is like that. I said, okay, but I hate anything to do with even stepping out of the house. I had one client that wouldn't even step out of the house. Okay. So I said, well, look, if you hate everything, what are you leaving me with? Nothing. <laughs> so I said, do you like music? I mean, this is this really happened, right? So do you like music? Yeah, I like music. Okay, put on the music that you like. Put on the music that she liked. This woman was sadly obese. Okay. And, and by the way, she was a life coach, this woman. She was, earning, she was earning a grand a day, was earning a grand a day life coaching, but she was obese and she just stayed in her house, right? And I said to her, right, you put the music that you like. So she chose some music and, I, and she, she said, oh, I used to dance. So I said, well, let's go and have a dance then. And so I, I, I literally got her up, which was a task in itself, and just had a little dance with her for about 20 minutes. And, and she started giggling. And for about six months, I'd turn up at her house. I kid you not, put on some music, have a dance with her until I could get her to leave the house and go for a walk. Now, she didn't, she didn't lose. She lost about 10 kilos in the process. She's able to walk now and go shopping. She's not doing jujitsu, but at least she's walking. So it, it differs with everyone. But I, I just think, I, I just believe that this is just, it's a mental construct in people's head that's what it is and you have to get round that i think i'm i think i'm slightly stuck on on the image you know, i quite admire when when someone's you know physically limited to the point of making themselves disabled i quite admire the having the self confidence to still be a life coach <laughs> i mean obviously you don't want anyone to be unhealthy no. and well and she obviously was reaching out for help but in some senses, when, when we're talking about how important confidence is and belief in yourself, it's hugely admirable that you would have the front to go, you know, I've, I've, got, I've got problems in my own life to the point where I can't leave the house. And yet I'm happy to tell other people how to live their life. I don't know. There's something, something in there. She's, she was very good at it as well. She was, she, was, she was an excellent life coach. She really was. I mean, her reputation was immense. You know, the people that knew her that said that, and, and she was, yeah, she was brilliant at counselling, all forms of life coaching, time management, business analysis. She was fantastic. But it's unfortunate that she couldn't, you know. I suppose, that, I suppose that, you know, it's easy to see, it's easier anyway to see other people's problems rather than your own, isn't it? You know, it's easy to say, oh, well, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to do, and then whatever weaknesses you've got in your own life. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, and I, you know, someone someone had asked me, would I go to her for some life coaching? And I and I said, look, yeah, in certain areas, she's really fantastic. She's really good. You know, in terms of life management and organizing your time, she's brilliant. Just because she's got that area of her life that's not effective for her, it doesn't mean she can't. You know, it's it's interesting. It was interesting. But anyway, eventually, she got walking. You know, she went from literally just going to the kitchen and coming back. She got out. She used to live in Mill Hill. She got out from her house. She used to go shopping. And I said to her, look, make sure when you get the shopping, because she used to get people to do the shopping for her. I said, well, why don't you start doing the shopping yourself? Why don't you get a trolley? Started introducing resistance, you know, and then I started cleaning up her fridge, introduced her to kind of like healthy eating. And slowly but surely, you know, and the last I heard, and I, I last I heard that she goes, well, not now, she's, she joined a tango club or some <laughs> dance 
Tuesday evening dance thing. So I did get a result. Amazing. Do you find it's a, a two-way street? Because obviously you're bringing this, you know, this, this health and martial arts and training, whatever it is, to them. But when you're training a whole diverse range of people, do you find that you're learning from them as well? You know, look, unbelievable. I, I was working in Saudi Arabia with a very high family for about eight, nine years, a very elite family, and, and dealing with bodyguards at a very, very elite level, right? And, you know, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be in a hotel near Medina, near Mecca, by the way, in Jeddah, right, which is <laughs> with the Wahhabis, very extreme. And, you know, in those days, I was just starting out with my kids and my family, and I needed the cash, so it came up and I went. And the experiences that I would learn there were unbelievable because I'd have to learn, I had to learn culture, tradition, aspects of a religion that I had no understanding of, not being able to approach a woman in a certain way because the culture and the tradition is different. And then I'd catch a plane back to London and then do someone who had, you know, who is finding it hard just to get up the stairs. And then the next minute I'd be with some, like a celebrity, like Ross Kemp, getting ready to do something. So, you know, you know, you're learning all the time from people all the time. And, and everyone's got a journey. Everyone's got a story, you know, and everyone's got a difficulty that they're throwing at you all the time. So it's, it's, it's fun. Did you manage to toughen that Ross Kemp up a bit? I did. Yeah. You know, it, it was just before he went to do the, um, you know, when he was doing the gangs. Yeah. So he, he'd done a year and a half of uh, Penjak Sila with me. Howdy. Hi, Andy. Do, do you know, I know. He, <laughs> he's actually a really, really nice guy, right? He, he, he comes over as Mitch from EastEnders, but he's nothing like that. He's very well-spoken, very well-educated, very polite, you know. Yeah, I've but heard people have, Yeah, yeah, and, and he was an ex-rugby player. So, you know, he's a strong lad. He's a tough lad. You had people that you've kind of, have brought you to the edge of your patience and you just thought, oh, I can't do this anymore. You don't have For to sure. name any names, but... <laughs> yeah, I've, ha- I, I've, I've had... Um, yeah, no, I've had a few of those. I've had a few of those over the years. But, you know, my wife calls me patient. That's what she calls me. She, she like, She's always like, how on earth have you kept eight years with this client? And I said, well, look, you know, everyone has, everyone has problems. But I did have a client that was... How can I say... It, it wasn't a patient thing. It was more of a, an obsession. She, she got obsessed with our relationship. Okay. So that, that I would say that was a far bigger issue. And what it was is that she, her body was breaking down every couple of months. She suddenly went through this chapter in her life. If it wasn't her neck, if it was her back, if it was her hip, if it was her knee. Right. And it just went on and on and on and on and on. And uh, anyway, she, I'd fix her neck, her back. So anyway, she was a very petite girl. And again, she was told that she was never good at this. She's not good at PE. And she ended up being really good at everything. It was amazing to see this girl transform. But anyway, she got, she got too obsessed with our relationship and uh, too fixated with it, too demanding. And, you know, and even when I left, she'd like leave to go to Spain. She was just kind of in bits. So I think for me, that's been the the hardest thing to manage in, in terms of training people. Sometimes you get people that have never had any help in their life with their bodies. And, and you know, Richard, a body is a very important thing. You live in it for all your life. So I think that's been the, the, the most demanding thing about the, the work that I do is that people suddenly get to a certain level and you, you have to say goodbye to them. You have to say, listen, you're on your own now. 
you can do it. And they don't want to let go. So that, that for me, has been more, more demanding than anything else. I've been blown away by that since, since um, seeing the trainers at Elevate in Richmond, seeing how the relationship they have over years with their clients and you become almost like a psychologist for them and you hear them unburdening all themselves. And if you think this is going for years, it must be, must become very close sometimes. And yeah, if you've been, if you've been speaking to that person, whether it's every week or so even several times a week for years, especially knowing how some people don't open up, a lot of people don't open up very easily. It must be hard when then you have to move or the relationship has to end for whatever reason. It, it's, it's very, very difficult, Richard, you know, um, but see, for, for me, within my martial arts and my training, the most important thing that I practice is, is, is stillness, is meditation. That's for me, fundamentally. People know me for martial arts, but the thing I practice the most is meditation, right? And over the years, what I've noticed, if, if someone said to me, hey, Steve, what's the one thing that you can guarantee that can help someone? I wouldn't point them to training. I wouldn't point them to martial arts. I wouldn't point them to a class. I'd point them to sitting still half an hour a day because it, it relaxes the nervous system. It dissolves the noise, the traffic, right? So over the years, you know, when I, do, when I have found that clients have got really sticky with me like that, that's when I normally say, hey, look, why don't you try this? And that has saved me so many times, Richard. You're, you're talking about sitting still. You, you would suggest that to someone before you would suggest meditation or exercise because I was actually fun enough I was thinking about this just before we did this podcast because if you've got it's the question if you've got 10 minutes what do you do do you think okay I've got some work I need to get done I've got this I could catch up on some emails do your social media whatever you need to do but quite often if you've got 10 minutes the best thing to do is nothing but most of us are not very good at doing nothing this is the thing so you need methods for doing nothing so how do people do nothing successfully Again, again, um, the way because, you know, you know, your beginning question about Silat and being one with the earth. Mm-hmm. Okay? In Penjak Silat, what we always do is we say we, we always say, what is existing without you trying? Well, all of your organs are working without Richard trying. Right. So whether you like it or not, they're automatically working. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then then who's doing the breath? Is the breath doing you or are you doing the breath? It, it's breathing you, right? So in Silat, you're always looking for this existing force. We call it this existing force. So if I'm teaching anyone Silat or stillness, I don't separate them because, you know, where, if I'm moving like so, I'm tapping into that with, yeah. For all your own beautiful hands. This is one of the things you <laughs> see in Silat, right? These moving hands. Yeah, you don't get in, you don't get in the in the, in the uglier martial arts. You don't get this beautiful movement. Not calling no, it but, ugly, but <laughs> but um, that existing force is what we tap into. So when you're sitting, that's why you tap into the breath because it's breathing you. So you're just when you ask the question, how do you coach someone into not doing anything? Well, that's how you're doing it because it's already doing it. You're already breathing. You're already living. You're already existing. What is existing without you? Is that what you said? Yeah. Your heart, your lungs, your breath. Who's doing the breathing? Who's doing the breathing? So you're basically just, so you're just allowing your body to get on with doing what it does without you interfering with it, basically. Wow, that's a brilliant way of articulating it. That's fantastic. Exactly. I think it's, it's one of these, it sounds so easy, but it's, it's less, 
Do you, do you know what I mean? It's less easy to. I was I was guilty of being um, slightly rude. I, I was talking on my last podcast with um, former Olympic diver Leon Taylor, and he's um, he's deep into the yoga, and, it, and he he messed up his body doing all that high board diving. You know, like you do, messed his shoulders up. He got into the yoga, and that saved him physically. And he teaches yoga and everything now, as as well as um, as uh, motivational speaking and so forth. Um, and the 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 thing. I said that I did I liked about about yoga was that it meant I didn't have to try and meditate anymore which is kind of you're probably thinking oh it's completely missing the point you don't try and meditate all this kind of thing what I meant was it I didn't have to it it just sort of allowed the the, you go to the place do yoga and it allows the meditation to happen without you having to create I don't know create that silence but this isn't probably the wrong attitude because you're saying it should be an easy thing. You should just be able to sit in a chair and allow your body to breathe and allow your body to get on with things. So why am I so bad at this? It's normally because we're overthinking. The, the, the habit of thinking that we do from the moment we wake up and we place so much, we place, especially in the West, so much emphasis on thinking things through. When in fact, you know, by the time you have a timetable, unless you're an analyst, you're not really thinking that much. You are, but you're not. Do you know what I mean? You're not having to break equations and formulas. You're not doing Pythagoras. You're not doing, you know, you're not doing physics the whole day. You're being. So, um, look, in my observation of when I've seen you guys train, you know, and, and I, I, love the, I love watching all of you train. I think there's a beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, atmosphere at Richmond, especially with the jiu-jitsu. But when I've seen you guys roll and I've sat back, when I've seen the best roles that you've done, it's when you've been in what I would call meditation. And science calls that the zone. It's just a smooth process of instinct, feeling, knowing what to do and thinking. They all merge as one. And, and then you see a really beautiful role. So that, that's, what, that's what meditation, that quality is what meditation gives you over a period of time. You start to find flow in work. Very nice. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. I, and it's kind of getting out of your own way and not worrying about it. And something that children, a state that children seem to get to quite easily, but grown-ups maybe find it a bit more difficult to get there. Yeah, exactly. That that childlike state is is spoken a lot in regards to meditation. But if you analyze it, it's more of like I don't really care anymore so much. Yeah. When you analyze it, you know, I don't really care if he's watching and I don't care what he says about me and I don't really care whether he's whether I'm doing it right or wrong. I'm done. I'm done with that. I just want to have fun. I just want to enjoy my martial arts. I just want to enjoy my jiu-jitsu. And, and that's what kids do, don't they? Just want to have fun. Yeah, they just go, they just go straight in there and, and enjoy it. And, and I think that's what's great about the martial arts is you, you, you forget to care. So yeah. you let yourself yeah. And that's when you not only have more fun, but you get, you get better at it as well. But you, get, you sort of get better by trying less. Well, that's the same as meditation. You've just described the whole process of it. Don't care. Stop trying. And then it happens by itself. Did you, did you study yoga as a separate thing? Or was that all part of your... No, no. Um, so, so my martial arts background was this. Is I started, I was boxing when I was six. I was boxing. My dad was a boxer. So my dad was, a, he was raised in southern Spain and he was an army. He was in the military and he boxed. So I boxed as a very young kid. 
But then I, I grew up in a very rough neighbourhood called Stonebridge, Northwest 10. It was a very rough estate and it was a lot of knife crime. And I, unfortunately, I, I was walking with a friend of mine and his uncle got stabbed to death outside of the KFC in Halston. And it traumatised me, you know, seeing someone just drop down at a very young age. So I started inquiring and I started learning Kuntao, which was an Indonesian martial, another Indonesian martial art. And I found a teacher by chance. And I, so from the ages of 11 to 19, I'd go to Tufnell Park, Camden, from Stonebridge, and I'd train with my Kun Tao teacher, whose name's Jerry Tan. He's 70 now, still alive. And, and, and then he was kind of just beginning his growing his school. And then we entered, we were doing full contact. So I was fighting up and down the country, Birmingham, Manchester, winning a lot of tournaments. And, but then slowly, I came to a point in the martial arts where I thought, I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to hit someone in the face anymore. This doesn't feel right for me. I, I, met, I then met my SILAP teacher in Holland and she ran a kind of uh, an academy where she taught yoga, Ayurvedic medicine, Penjak SILAP and philosophy. So I stayed, I stayed with her until 2012, until she passed away. And she sent me off to different, to train under different teachers all over Indonesia. So the yoga, to answer your question, the yoga is part of, the sea it's 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 part of the training i think it should be part of all martial arts really because i got for i got i i got forced to go there by my body breaking down i didn't like the idea of it at all but to just the, the results speak for themselves i mean it, it just feels amazing it feels like you're you're kind of robbing your body if you don't do something like that whether you call it yoga or whether you call it deep stretching or whatever you we, i think we all need to do something like that i, I would agree with you what i found I would totally, totally agree with you. But what I found as effective is it, like, when you're sparring, and I, I'm sure you know this anyway, I'm sure you know this. I've watched you spar over the years and I've watched you transform as a martial artist. I've seen your transformation. But you know when you get white belts, they're gripping and then you, you see the really skilled guys and they're just loosing. So that level of relaxation, as the body starts to let go more and you start to use the tendons more, yoga naturally happens within the martial arts anyway because you're not accumulating tendons you're letting you're letting go of tension do you know what i mean i suppose you're i suppose you're right if you look at guys that are really good at brazilian jiu-jitsu they're gonna have some yoga hips yes aren't they because you you, yeah. you you have to yeah and it was having that tightness that was just forcing me to think well what am i going to do and for me yoga particularly the hot yoga has been been incredible That's really i mean cool. it doesn't it doesn't magic you into a kind of bendy 20 year old overnight obviously that's the thing is this real I mean I think what I have learned is this real patience thing with any kind of stretching you can't sort of think oh I'm going to get to this by the end of the week but that's a good thing I think it's it, it forces you to think right well I have to do this regularly and for a long time but then you don't want to be doing it for a bit and stop this is a thing you do for the rest of your life that's the way I see it mm, it's true did, did, have, did you find that yoga um, helped your spine did you find that your spine flexibility improved yes I mean it's still it's still not it's still not great there are certain bits of me that are not flexible at all but I think you have to do that thing of comparing yourself to yourself you know if you start thinking why can't I do what she's doing at the front well you you're never going to be able to do what what she's doing you know you have to think well am I slightly better than I was a month ago and I've certainly been you know 
is improved in all areas. The tight areas are slightly less tight and the, the okay areas are all right. But yeah, it's really helped. It's really helped with the jiu-jitsu as well. What about the posture? Posture, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm very aware of my posture and I know it was bad for years. In fact, it, I just had that the sort of slumping over of the shoulders that you yeah, do. Because I find, I find a lot of the jiu-jitsu guys, they're doing that a lot, right? Yeah. Right. yeah. I think probably a lot of sports, but yeah, you, you push more than you pull and you end up, even you see some really good jiu-jitsu guys and their posture terrible while they're, while they're fighting. So I think it's, it's probably something they need to think of more, certainly address their posture. You're making me do it now. I'm aware, of, <laughs> I'm aware I'm putting my spine in the correct position. Okay, fantastic. Listen, it's been so great to talk to you, Steve. If people want to find out more, you have a website that's called... SatriaArts.com. Fantastic. Well, it's so great to hear more about what you do. I love you know, I love watching you at work when we get the chance and hopefully the world's going to get back to normal and you can start... Because you're very much in demand around the world for your seminars, aren't you? I, I have been in demand. Yeah, the last 10 years has been, there's been a big, there has been a big demand here. So hopefully we'll get back. Okay. And then in the meantime, we'll learn to be still... Allow our body That's to the key. and do what it does best. Just let it be. <laughs> Thanks so Thank much. You. Thank you very Thank much. You. I look Cheers. forward to seeing you. We'll, we'll, we'll catch up at Richmond's at some point. Okay. Definitely. Have a nice call. Thank Cheers, you. Steve. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye. Thank you. Bye, Richard. Thanks again to Steve Benitez. His website is satriaarts.com. That's S-A-T-R-I-A hyphen arts.com. Healthy Beast Podcast is healthybeastpodcast.com. And it is also at Healthy Beast Podcast on Instagram. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.